Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome again to Easter at Seabreeze. We're so glad that you've joined us to celebrate uh, this most important day of the year, where we celebrate the event that shocked everyone who was around at that time when Jesus walked out of that tomb. Now, Jesus had said this was going to happen. He had publicly said on several occasions that not only was he going to be crucified, but that three days later he would rise from the dead. But it was, honestly, it was too incomprehensible for anyone listening to him to really take it seriously. But then, of course, it did happen. And now, at a distance of 2,000 years, those of us who know this story well, it's pretty easy for us to miss all of the confusion that was part of those who were there when the resurrection reports first started to trickle in. Their initial response was not to believe the resurrection, but to doubt it, to question it. Listen to the disciples' response when the women returned from the tomb that morning. They had found it empty, and they came back to report to the disciples what they had seen. This is what we read in Luke 24, verses 9 through 11. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven. These are eleven disciples. And to all of the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women. Because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Didn't make any sense to them. Now, any thinking person would respond this way to the news that someone had just risen from the dead. If you just accept a report like that at face value, it means, well, it means that you're not thinking. And thinking is what makes us humans different, really, from every other life form. As a life form, we are not the biggest we are not the strongest, we are not the sturdiest of creatures. So if it wasn't for our minds, we would have long since passed from this earth. It is our minds that has, have protected us and provided for us. And it was their minds that appropriately kicked in on that first Easter and protected the disciples and the others from just simply believing these reports without looking into it, without thinking about that. Now, the kind of life that we build takes shape first in our minds. That's why we're going to do this series called Think, because it's so important what we think. What we think then works its way out into reality, and it becomes the kind of life that we build. Now, this would be fine. This would be great if we never made any mistake in our thinking, if all of our thoughts were accurate, if our minds never failed us. But, of course, that's not true. Often, we think thoughts that turn out to be wrong, not just on paper, but in real life. And often, we think thoughts that cause us to feel emotions that are wrong, that are not true, and are very destructive, not just emotions in theory, but emotions in the real pain that we feel and the pain that we cause to others. So you would think that our mistake-prone thinking past would make us more humble thinkers, as we look into the future. But that is not the case. In the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians, we read this strong warning about being arrogant thinkers. Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 8, 2. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. Just because we think we know something doesn't mean they're all right. Doesn't mean that we really do know. In fact, it's arrogant thinking that tends to be the lowest quality kind of thinking that we do. 
It's not enough just to be confident. It's not enough just to think you know. This past year, of course, was not what anybody thought it would be. It was not what any of us expected. And even as we began to wrap our minds around it and think about what we thought would happen next, over and over again, we were wrong. So you would think that this pandemic would have turned us all into a more humble bunch of thinkers. But that had not been the case. I mean, just listen to the conversations around you, maybe your own conversations. Just look at what's being posted online. And it's clear that our confidence in what we think is at an all-time high. Very few appear to be curious anymore or puzzled or uncertain about anything anymore. Now, I think part of the reason is that our modern forms of communication do not promote curiosity or uncertainty. I mean, no one posts on their social media, I'm really not sure what I think about that. You don't post that kind of thing. No one starts a blog entitled Uncertain Musings. No one would follow that blog. Media outlets don't wait until they have all of the facts before they broadcast a story, because if they waited till they had all of the facts and had really thought about the story before they said it, they'd be the last ones to tell the story. So nobody waits for facts anymore. It's a rush to be the first one to tell the story. So every day, we are not challenged to think, but we are told with absolute certainty what we should think. And in fact, we're even told what we should say, the actual words that we should say. So while these forms of modern thought are new, the arrogance that drives the modern mind is nothing new. It's been part of human thinking since recorded history. We've always struggled with arrogant thinking. So this morning, I want to look at the Easter story and draw two very important lessons, humility lessons, humble thinking lessons out of the Easter story. The first lesson I think that comes out of the Easter story in regards to our thinking is this. Be sure that you wonder before you speak, before you open your mouth and let everyone know what your big idea is, be sure that you have taken time to wonder, to ponder what it is that you're going to say. I think this important lesson was learned by Peter. Peter was one of the top disciples of Jesus. Peter was knowing for, known well for speaking before he really thought. And so he kind of began the three-day event of the crucifixion and the resurrection saying, opening his mouth first, and he ended with wondering. He learned his lesson. When Peter first heard of the resurrection, he did something very un-Peter-like. He didn't say anything. This is what we read in Luke 24, verse 12. Peter, however, this is after the women had reported, Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. He wanted to check it out for himself. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. So when Peter saw the empty tomb for himself with his own eyes, did the light bulb suddenly go off in his head? No. He went away scratching his head. He went away wondering. Why? 
Because what he was seeing with his own eyes, what he'd heard with his ears, just didn't fit with what he had been thinking. You see, wondering is what occurs whenever you encounter something that doesn't fit what you had previously thought. Like everyone who thinks, Peter had a, a framework of thought already in place. This is just the way our minds work. All of our minds work this way. We don't just collect data. We don't just see things. We don't just hear words and store that data to be retrieved later. No, whenever we experience anything, we think about it. And the way we think about it is we try to make sense of it. We don't just say, huh, interesting. We ask why and where does that fit? We try to make sense of it. What that means is we are constantly trying to connect the dots. We're, we're trying to make connections. A good way to think of it is our minds are convinced that everything is like a puzzle piece. Here's a picture of a, a puzzle. You see the picture on the front and all the pieces in front. And so whenever our mind encounters something, we automatically assume this belongs somewhere. This isn't just a random piece of data. This is just, just an experience. This is supposed to be connected to something. This is to fit into some kind of larger framework or larger picture of what's going on. It's one part of a picture that explains how everything fits together. This is the way every mind works. So what we do is we pick a picture. And then we try to fit everything we think and everything we experience into that picture of larger reality. Now, just three days before Peter was left wondering, Jesus had told Peter and the rest of the disciples that his death and his resurrection was going to happen. But rather than wonder, in that moment, Peter had spoken first, immediately. He'd spoken up and he'd rebuked Jesus and basically said, Jesus, you're wrong. You're not going to die. Well, how did Peter come to that conclusion? It's because a dying Jesus did not fit the picture that Peter was using to put all the puzzle pieces in. Now, Peter wasn't just making up his own picture. We hardly ever make up our own picture of what we think the world is supposed to be like and what reality is. Like most people, Peter's thinking reflected the picture of his culture. And in this picture, Jesus fit as the puzzle piece called Messiah. The Jews had long hoped for the Messiah to come and free them from the oppression of Rome. So in Peter's mind, as he got to know Jesus, and as he saw Jesus do miracles, and as he listened to him teach, in Peter's way of thinking, Jesus had checked all of the Messiah boxes. But then Jesus was arrested. And so Peter immediately drew out his sword, thinking, this is the moment we've all been waiting for. The Messiah is going to begin the revolt against Rome. So he takes out his sword, and Jesus immediately rebukes him. And at this point, Peter's mind is officially blown. He's now swirling in confusion because he just encountered an experience that didn't fit inside of the picture that his mind had been using. And then, after his crucifixion, now there's this report of resurrection, and Peter goes to the tomb, and he sees with his own eyes that the stone had been removed, not just a little stone, a massive stone that had been sealed was removed, and the strips of linen that he had seen the body of Jesus wrapped in was laying there, but there was no body. 
This didn't fit at all. This was way outside of the thought picture that Peter had been using to make sense of things for his entire life. It turns out that Peter's thought picture had no place for the puzzle piece called the risen Christ. But that's what he was looking at, was evidence of a risen Christ. You see, whenever we encounter, like Peter did, something that doesn't fit our understanding, it's time to wonder, not to speak. It's time to go quiet and get your mind going. Now, what do you think Peter wondered about as he was walking away from that tomb? Well, my guess is that he was wondering if he'd been wrong about the big picture that he'd been using to make sense of life. Now, it takes a lot of humility to wonder if you've been wrong, maybe wrong for your entire life. That's a hard thing to ponder. But it is in these disorienting, wandering moments of life that we often do some of our best thinking. So what is the big picture that you are using to make sense of the world? What's the big picture that you are taking the pieces of your days and fitting them into? In our culture, there is a debate between two pictures. The two pictures are science and faith. Those are the two pictures that we're putting pieces in. Now, most people think it's a question of either or, that you have to pick one puzzle box and build your life based on the facts of science or the belief of faith. But it's not an either or. Both are very helpful pictures, and I would say very accurate pictures. But they, they build their pictures differently. Science starts with the puzzle pieces, and it tries to figure out how they go together and therefore what the big picture of reality looks like. Faith starts on the other side. It starts with the front of the puzzle box. It starts with the picture. It starts with the creator, the painter of the picture, who then tells us what the big picture is and where the pieces fit. Both are helpful. I would say both are true. On Thursday, I went to the skin doctor because I, I have a history of skin cancer. Several years ago, they found a little spot of melanoma, I had to do some surgery, and so now every year, I go in for a skin check. And I had a question, and the question was, any signs of cancer? Now, that is a great question for science, in this case, medical science. And honestly, I'm alive because of the pieces of the puzzle that science, medical science, particularly cancer science, has put together. But on that morning, before I went to the appointment, I also prayed, and I asked God to help the doctor spot any cancer. Why? Because science is what people know so far, which is a lot, but it's not everything. That's why science is very different today than it was just 50 years ago. You'll get a science textbook from 50 years ago and read it, and you'll see 
There's all kinds of stuff in there that scientists no longer believe. Why? Because they found more puzzle pieces that contradict with the thought they had before, and so it's been updated, which makes sense if you're starting with puzzle pieces and building out. You're, you're going to learn more and more. So science is always what we know now. It's approximate knowledge. It's not complete knowledge. So I prayed because my understanding is that God is not learning like science is learning. God knows. You see, science is, is the way I think of it is, is it's like a hundred-piece puzzle that's very accurate, but it fits inside a larger, let's say, thousand-piece puzzle, which is what God knows and does. And the puzzle, uh, the hundred-piece puzzle may be expanding, maybe Maybe in 50 years, it'll be a 120-piece puzzle. But it's expanding, and it's very helpful, and it's a blessing to us. But it's just not big enough for every question that we have. A week ago, my wife and I spent time with a good friend who had suddenly and unexpectedly lost her husband. Science has absolutely no answers to the tearful questions that she is struggling with right now. For that, we need a bigger picture. I would say we need faith. You know, as long as the questions that you are facing fit inside the 100-piece puzzle of science, then you don't need a bigger picture to make sense of life. But our minds, this is just the way our minds work. Our minds can't help asking the bigger questions of life, like, what is my purpose? And why do I matter? And how can I be truly happy? And, as this friend is asking, what really happens after we die? Science can't get those puzzle pieces. It can't answer those questions. For those questions, you need to think beyond the helpful limit, the borders that are very helpful, but the borders of science. For me personally, I grew up hearing that the Bible offers the real picture of the way life is, this life and the life to come. But honestly, I, I had never done a lot of wondering about that. And I had never done any wondering about the other faith pictures that are out on the market because the Bible isn't the only puzzle picture. There's other religions. There's other thoughts of faith. And I'd never wondered much about those. And then in my early 20s, life just stopped working for me. Another way to say it is I started asking some big questions that I didn't have answers for. And so for the better part of two years, I did a lot of wondering. I did a lot of thinking, a lot of pondering. I read the Bible from cover to cover for the first time. I'd never done that. I read the Quran, which is the scriptures from which Islam comes. I read the Bhagavad Gita, which is the early Sanskrit writings that form Hinduism and then Buddhism. I wanted to see, what do these other pictures say, and does it fit with reality? And after two years, I personally concluded that the Bible was true. Now, what happened for me at that point was for the first time ever in my entire life, the Bible and what it said actually began to shape my thinking. I began to use it to put the pieces of what I was experiencing day by day into place. Now, this was what I did. 
my wondering, my pondering, my conclusions aren't going to help you. You're going to have to do your own wondering, if you haven't on this matter, your own thoughts. But what I would say is don't just parrot the voices of this day. I run into so many people that say the three or four things that people say about the Bible, and whenever I say, have you read it, they always say, well, no. And I would just say, don't parrot whatever other people are saying because you were not created to be a parrot. You are a person with a mind. You are created to think. Now, if you come to those conclusions, having thought, that's fine. Just don't buy whatever people are saying. The challenge, I think, right now with our culture is our culture is becoming predominantly a speaking culture, not a thinking culture. We are a posting thoughts culture, not a let's have a discussion and let's wonder about this culture. And the result is that while we may be sounding smarter and smarter over time, we're actually, I fear, becoming dumber and dumber because we're forgetting how to think. So wonder before you speak. The second lesson of Easter when it comes to humble thinking is this. Think before you decide. You'd think that would be the logical order, but turns out that's not usually the way it works. Think before you decide. Now, unlike Peter, there were a group of people whose thinking was, was not impacted at all by the reports of the resurrection of Christ 2,000 years ago. Now, how is that possible? How could you get word that Jesus had risen from the dead and have it not impact you at all? Well, the reason is because this group of people had already made up their mind about Jesus. And the reason they made up their mind about Jesus was not because they'd spent a lot of time wondering and pondering and thinking. No, they'd made up their mind for personal reasons. The group I'm talking about were the religious leaders of the day, the ones that Rome had put in charge of a lot of the resources and the day-to-day -day running of the Jewish nation. And for them, if Jesus really did rise from the dead, what that meant is he was who he'd been claiming to be all along, God in flesh. And most importantly to them, what that meant is that they were about to lose power. And they were not going to let that happen. They weren't going to lose power. They weren't going to lose privilege. So long before the resurrection had ever happened and the reports began to trickle out, they had already landed on their decision about Jesus for personal reasons. Now, everyone knows that you're supposed to think first and then decide second. But as I said, so often we tend, for personal reasons, to decide first and then we put our brain to work thinking. The word for that actually is justifying what we've already decided. Now, whenever we have already decided and we're using our brain to justify, it usually shows up in two really interesting ways. The first way it shows up is we begin to only ask questions that support our decision. We don't ask just curious questions. We ask questions that really have a point to them the point that fits with our decision. 
Now, the Sadducees were the name of one of the political groups that were in charge of the Jewish nation at this time. They were like a political party, like Republicans or Democrats. They were called Sadducees. And before the resurrection, when Jesus was doing his teaching and performing his miracles, we read something interesting in Mark chapter 12, verse 18. This is one of the books in the New Testament that shares the biography of Jesus. And this is what it says. It says, then the Sadducees, this is part of the religious leaders, who say there is no resurrection. You hear that? They've already made their mind up. Who say there is no resurrection. They came to Jesus with a question. Now, you can read more about it, but the question was this. They, they said, Jesus, there was this woman who ends up having seven husbands who die on her one after another. So she has her first husband, he dies, she remarries, second husband, three, four, five, six, seven husbands. The question they ask is this. In the, in the next life, which one of these seven gets to be her husband? Now, does that sound like an honest question that someone would really have? Does that sound like a life that would have actually happened to anyone. I mean, maybe, but that's a pretty tragic life. Now, this is not a question. This is a question that has a point. What's the point? There is no resurrection. That's the point they've already landed on. Now, Jesus answers their question. He says, well, the answer is there's no marriage in the next life. This may be a disappointment to you, but this is what Jesus says. There's, there's no marriage in the next life. So she's not married to any of them because nobody's married to anybody in the next life. Now that would answer the question, but that did not change their minds because their minds had already been made up. Now we do the same kind of thing all the time. We ask questions that aren't real questions to make a point. Say, for example, you're married and you're struggling in your marriage. You and your spouse have an argument. Rather than get curious about what's really going on so that you can make progress, you get defensive. I do this. You get defensive. I decide. It's not my fault. I don't ask. I don't look into it. I decide I didn't do anything wrong. It's her fault. It's not my fault. So then I start asking questions. But they're not real questions. I ask questions like, am I supposed to do all the work around here? Is that a real question? No. Or, do you expect me to be perfect? Is that a real question? No. The answer to both of those questions is, well, no, I don't expect you to do all the work around here. And no, I don't expect you to be perfect because no one's perfect. But those questions miss the point. The point of the question should be, what's going on here? What, what is the problem? And what part do I have in that problem so that I can address that? That's what the question should be. But that requires humility and thought, which tends to be in short supply in the human mind. So we ask these loaded questions that make our point. The second evidence of a mind that's already decided and is now thinking is we're only interested in the facts that support our decision. You see this at the trial of Jesus before his crucifixion. Mark chapter 14, verses 55 through 56 says this, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin, so this was like Congress, you know, the whole, all the religious leaders, chief priests leading it. 
They were looking for evidence against Jesus. See, it wasn't a real question. They, they, had, they wanted an outcome. They were looking for evidence so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any. That should be the end of that. No, no. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements didn't agree. They couldn't even get their stories lined up because this, this came together pretty quickly. So they were looking for evidence against Jesus. What happened when they found none? Did that change their minds? No, they proceeded anyway. And that's because this was not about the facts. This was about the practicalities. Jesus, as I said, was a threat to their daily life as religious leaders. He was a threat to their power. And the same thing is still true today. Jesus is still a practical threat. Not just to religious leaders, but to all of us. And that's because if we decide to follow Jesus, he intends to change you. I'll just put it this way. He will mess with your life. Now, it'll be a great mess, and it'll be much better than what you could have constructed, but it's not always going to be comfortable. And almost everybody knows this because we have brains. Almost everybody knows, you know, if, if I check out this Jesus stuff and it turns out that I decide to follow it, there's this part of my life I'm going to have to change, and I don't want to change that. And there's that part of my life I'm going to change, and I don't want to change that. So suddenly it becomes not about the facts. It becomes about the decision I've already made. I'm going to do this. And therefore, Jesus can't be true. This can't be real. Because you don't want it to be true. At that point, the intellectual evidence is irrelevant. This took me a while to come to understand because for me, my path had been a very intellectual, investigate the facts, look into the data process. And so I just assumed, oh my goodness, if, if other people could just see the evidence, they would follow Jesus too. And so I would convince people and I would explain, oh, do you see this? And, and I'd come to find out there's just usually the reason people don't want to follow Jesus is because not the evidence, it's because there's something in their life they don't want to change. They've already made their mind up. So when the word came back to the religious leaders about the resurrection of Jesus, to the chief priests, their response was pretty predictable. We read about it in Matthew 28, 11 through 13. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. So the women are running to the disciples to say, the tomb is empty. At the same time, the guards who were posted, Roman guards, who don't take their guard duty lightly because if they fall asleep on guard, they are killed. That, that is a mind-centering moment. You're going to stay awake. So these guards went back to tell the chief priests, the tomb's empty. They reported the chief priests everything that happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away, while we were asleep. Now, what's part of this is they would also have to pay off their commanders so that they don't kill these soldiers for falling asleep, as the story says. Now, when you think about it, this is incredible. 
the chief priests knew this wasn't true. How did they know this wasn't true? They made it up. They made the story up themselves. So the question I have is, what do you think they thought really happened to the body? They had to wonder. I mean, it's not there, because if it was there, they would have produced it. If they could have found it, they would have produced it. But it's not there. So they make up this story, but what do they think happened to it? I mean, how can you ignore a firsthand report from Roman soldiers like this? Well, you can ignore it when the price of considering it is too high. These men would lose a lot if they admitted that he had risen from the dead. So they ignored the overwhelming facts. What was wrong with them? Well, honestly, it's the same thing that's often wrong with our thinking. Once we decide we want something, the quality of our thinking goes down. And we just start justifying. We live in a time in our culture full of talking heads. With all of that noise, it's really hard to do much thinking, much wondering. And we live at a time that does all of the thinking for us and tells us exactly what we should think. But God has given each one of us a mind. He intends for us to use it to think, to wonder before we speak, and to think before we decide. What we need is a dose of humility. As it says in 1 Corinthians 8, 2, those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. This is the theme verse of the new message series that we're starting today called Think. We are not as smart as we'd like to think we are. Now, we are sounding, as I said, smarter and smarter as a culture, but I think getting dumber and dumber. So over the next five Sundays, we're going to be considering some of the main challenges that we face when it comes to how we think. And my great hope and prayer is that we'll be able to knock off some of the unused thinking cobwebs from our collective minds. And my hope and prayer is that you'll be able to join us for this journey over the next five Sundays. Let's pray. Jesus, we bow before you, our risen Lord, because of the price you paid on the cross and because of your power over death, you have the power to forgive our sins and to give us not only a new kind of life in this life, but a kind of life that starts here and goes on into eternity with you. We are thankful for the life that we don't deserve because you died a death that you did not deserve. And on this day, when we celebrate your resurrection, we just simply say thank you. We bow before you. Help us to think rightly before you. Because what we think turns into a life and then turns into an eternity. Help us, we pray. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.